We are Second Corinthians chapter 11, and we are going to be reading verses 7 down to verse 11. Verse 7 down to 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I, ro- I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. Let's pray one more time together. Father, you often put your servants through great and adverse and difficult circumstances for the good of others. And Father, as I just reflect on the life of the Apostle Paul here, it is quite evident that you put Paul through quite an ordeal in Corinth so that by the grace of God, we would not have to go through this ordeal. You made him suffer as an example and go through great turmoil and great travail and even as he described himself, labor pains over the church so that by the grace of God we could be kept from repeating the same mistakes that the Corinthians had committed. And so we pray that we would learn from the example not only of Paul but the example of the Corinthians who had in many ways erred and in many ways needed correction and in many, na- many ways needed to be confronted on a series of things. And Lord, in your wisdom, you have given us your word containing all of these various ecclesiastical injunctions and all of these instructions. And so, God, we pray that you would make us, as we are becoming more and more, by your grace, a pure church, that more and more we would learn from Paul's example in Corinth. Lord, give us wisdom as we look at all of these issues and make this message come home to every heart and every mind in this church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, verse 7, if you kind of notice there, begins almost as an incomplete statement, almost as if it belongs to something else, and it does. It actually is part of Paul's defense that he began earlier in the chapter in verse 1 as he begins to defend himself and begins to defend his gospel and begins to defend his his apostolic authority in verse 5 saying that he was not inferior at all to the, to the most eminent apostles. And so that right there we are given a clue as to what is going on in Corinth and what's happening behind the scenes. That the apostle Paul is being characterized in such a way to paint him as an apostle that is less than inferior to the other apostles, the eminent apostles. And that's why most people connect the opponents of Paul in Corinth to uh, sort of a a Jerusalem origination. 
Maybe they were claiming to have come from James. Maybe they were claiming that they had a better connection to the Jerusalem apostles, the eminent apostles, the apostles that were pillars, reportedly reported to be pillars in Galatians chapter 2. But here, Paul makes it clear once again that he is not at all inferior to any of those apostles, but, he is, but that he is an apostle through and through. One of the accusations that might have came against the Apostle Paul was that the reason why he did not take financial support is because he wasn't worthy of it, he knew it, and therefore he, was, he, he wasn't willing to ask for it. And we'll see as the text develops what the, what, what's going on here. But for Paul's, from Paul's perspective, this is just an opportunity for Paul to prove to the church that what he was doing was not for any sort of deceptive or devious motives that he had, but really what he was doing is that he was sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. And here, 1 Corinthians comes back into play. 1 Corinthians, so that 1st, 2nd Corinthians really coming together in one theological unison, and it's important to go to 1 Corinthians to sort of unlock the theology of the Apostle Paul right here. And I'm referring to 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 9, because there he asserts his authority, and he asserts his right as a minister, and he proves that what he's doing is actually laying down rights. He's actually laying down that which is rightfully his, a privilege that he has, but that he willingly laid aside. And so things have developed from that point in 1 Corinthians 9 to this point. Really, even more than developing, they've deteriorated. And so what Paul is going to do is he is going to reverse the influence of the false teachers, and he is going to go from their accusations to reality. And the very first thing is that he goes from pride, at least in their eyes, to humility, the way he sort of turns the tables on them. Let's begin in verse 7. He says, Or did I commit sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And so right away, Paul deals with the whole issue of financial independence, that he was not committing a sin. And that, of course, is, is spoken with a, with, with a bit of irony and with emphasis, that uh, they were accusing him of wrongdoing. I mean, this is just another example of how out of control things had gotten in Corinth, how twisted and how backwards things had gotten. Here is Paul humbling himself to the point where he's not even taking financial uh, remuneration from the church, whatever you want to call it. They're not even paying him to minister to them. And somehow the false teachers have twisted that to equal pride. That Paul was actually being arrogant by doing that. That he had committed a sin by doing that. That it, maybe he had hidden motives, false motives in doing that. But really, Paul is actually humbling himself. And this is the reason. This whole passage is beautiful to me because it really magnifies, it emphasizes, again, the fact that Paul was a true churchman. That he put the church first, even above his own concerns, even above his own needs, Paul, first and foremost, put the needs of the church first. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself? Watch the purpose clause, so that you might be exalted. 
In other words, he was brought down and they were brought up. He was, he was minused, we can say, and they were plussed. He decreased. They increased. He humbled himself and they, exa- they were exalted. And so the first reason why, from Paul's perspective, that this was not pride is because he had their intention in mind. But as I already mentioned, even to understand all of that, I think we need to understand the immensity of Paul's sacrifice. Here is an apostle. Here is a a man whose labors are renowned, and he's going to actually go into those labors as he goes on in the chapter. But if anybody has the right to be financially supported, you would think it is Paul. His sacrifice is unparalleled in the pages of Scripture. And as a matter of fact, his ministry was one big calling to suffer. You remember Jesus' words for Paul or or, or for uh, uh, Ananias when he goes and gets Paul. He says, he's going to have to suffer certain things for me. I will show him everything that he will suffer for my name's sake. Paul says in every town, the Holy Spirit prophesies that chains await him. Everywhere he went, he was ready to suffer. If anybody deserved to be financially supported or supported in any way, it was Paul. But Paul says, look, the first part of that is, look, the question he's asking is, did I commit a sin? Of course not. You're meant to feel the audacity of the accusation there. They're accusing him of sin because he sacrificed for them. And then the second part of the question is this. He says, I preached the gospel to you without charge. How could he possibly be blamed for wrongdoing when he had preached to them without charge? He freely preached the gospel to them because the gospel is a gospel of free grace. God had given him the gospel freely. And Jesus, as he instructed his disciples, were to give freely because freely they had received. And in the same way, Paul refused at times, not all the time, but at times, he refused to be supported by the church working with his own hands. As we know, Paul was a tent maker. He would work hard with his own hands to supply his own needs before being a burden to the church. And so Paul, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're already there, you can really see the theology of this in this letter. The theology that he's already developed for, he's already taught this to them. They already know this. But Paul goes into great lengths to prove in... um, chapter 9, that he has all the right in the world to be supported. Paul argues that he had the right to eat and drink, meaning, look, he's, he, has the, he, he is entitled to the bare necessities of life. In, in other words, we could say he's entitled to have a roof over his head, to have a meal on his table, to have a warm bed at night. He was also entitled, if he wanted to, to get married, like Peter. He says that in verse 5. He said that Peter and some of the other apostles, even the brothers of the Lord, they took along a believing wife. That's another example of Paul's sacrifice. Paul, instead of enjoying the pleasures of marriage, the, well, depending on how your marriage is, I don't know how pleasurable you might think it is, but he, he, he forwent the pleasure of having a wife or a family or a home with a family in it. He, he refused that right. 
Maybe Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, other men who maybe had foregone that right. You think of Timothy when he was picked up in Crete by Paul. He picks him up and he takes him on missionary journeys. When did Timothy have time to raise a family or to meet a, meet a girl, a godly girl in the church and get married and get settled down? He probably didn't. He's probably too young. Even as a pastor, he was young. He was probably, probably single. There's no evidence that he was even married by the time the pastoral epistles were, were written. And that could be one of the reasons why they despised his youth. Because here's this young, single pastor telling me, who I'm twice his age, I've raised kids, I have sons his age, and he's telling me how to live my life before God. They despised his youth. And Paul says, don't let anybody despise your youth. Because more than being wise in terms of natural things and familial things and those types of things is being wise unto salvation. And Paul will go on to say, look, was it just Paul and Barnabas in verse 6? They were the only ones who had to work? Everybody else could stop working except them too? Is that what, is that what was going on there? Paul will appeal to different metaphors. He argues from civil law. He argues from agriculture. He argues from the Pentateuch. He argues from the law. He uses the principle of sowing and reaping. He argues from the priesthood. There Paul, as an apostle, taking on kind of a priestly role. He was entitled to certain priestly privileges, just like the priests were. When the priests offered up the sacrifices, they were entitled to some of the food that came from the barbecue. They didn't have to refrain. God provided that for them in the sacrifice. And it says, and from the instructions also that the Lord had given them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, God, Jesus had given his disciples instructions to make their living from the gospel. And so Paul was totally entitled to this. And uh, ultimately, you see the sacrifice here that everything that he did, he did it because he was a gospel-centered minister. Look at verses 15 to 18 of chapter 9. He says, but I have used none of these things that we've looked at, none of those privileges. And I'm writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I am not writing these things, excuse me, so it will be done so. In other words, he's not trying to get at that. That's not his aim. For it would be better for me to die than to have anyone make my boast an empty one. This is a close parallel to the text that we're looking at right here in, chapter, in, in, in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't want somebody to empty his boast, meaning of his willingness to lay down those rights for the sake of Christ. He says, for I preach the gospel. I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. He was compelled to preach. He says, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Wow, do we feel like that? Do, are there evangelists in the church that feel like that? I actually had a pastor tell me that's referring to expositional preaching. Verse by verse. No, it's not. It's actually referring to Paul and his compulsion to go into the world as a missionary and preach the gospel to unsaved people groups. That's the burden. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel in the regions of Achaia, in Spain, in Rome, wherever, to the ends of the earth. That was his primary, that's the primary meaning of this text. He says, for, I, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if, if, if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So either way. Either he does it willingly or if he does it against his will, he's still entrusted with a stewardship before God. He has to preach. He says, what then is my reward? 
that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Sacrifice. That's his reward. His reward is that he could be a sacrifice for the church. Isn't that what he tells the Galatians in chapter uh, 2, I think it is? Or no, Philippians. I think it is Galatians 2, where he is poured out. No, I'm sorry, that's Philippians chapter 4. That's the problem with extemporaneous preacher. Let that be a warning to you, preachers in here. (laughs) Philippians chapter 4, he says, I'm being poured out as an offering for the church. And that's what it meant. He said, look, I don't make use of my right. Oh, what an example we have in Paul. No wonder Jesus, when he called him, he said he was going to make him an example for everyone who believes after him. What an incredible model role. What an incredible example of sacrifice, a selfless minister, a thoroughly selfless minister. A message that is desperately needed in our age where ministers are flying around in private jets and have an entourage of security guards and arrive in limousines. Just unbelievable. The church had taken Paul's sacrifice, however, from a totally different perspective. They thought he was being prideful. Look look at the, the extent of this. He says, I robbed other churches, as it were, back in 2 Corinthians 11. I robbed other churches, as it were, by taking wages from them to serve you. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? This shows just how much the church should have appreciated Paul's conduct. But ironically, the false teachers really had turned everything upside down. His sacrifice was actually selfishness. And that's how twisted things can get. The church that he's referring to here is probably the Macedonians. In verse 9, It's probably true that at this time, maybe the Philippians, if you take Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 as a parallel, maybe the Philippians were the main source of his support at this time. And Paul was unwilling to take money from the Corinthians, and I think we should ask why. Why was he unwilling to take money from Corinth, but he would take money from Philippi? Let me suggest it's because Philippi was an established church. Corinth was a new church. It was a baby church. It was still in its infancy stages, and it was therefore more of a missionary relationship. By the time that Paul's writing to Philippi, he has a long-established relationship with Philippi, one of coming and going, of giving and receiving, as he says, and people in the church that are ministering to his needs when he's imprisoned in Rome. So it's a much more extensive situation there in Philippi. But here in Corinth, he knows that the issues in the church are volatile. He knows that the issue in the church is sensitive. It's delicate. The last thing you want to do is throw money at that and say, oh, I need to get, you know, supported because, you know, I have other churches I want to plant. Wait a minute. You haven't planted this church yet. Wait until everything settles down. I mean, this church is on the brink of being overthrown by false teachers. So it makes a lot of sense to me that Paul would forgo this. And then at times, Paul just simply decided, you know what, I'm not going to take support from the church at all. So he had his support. And on top of that, he didn't need any more support. He had all of his needs that were met. And the big thing here is that he did not want to be a burden to them. In 2 Corinthians 6, we've already seen this. Paul's willingness to sacrifice everything and anything for the sake of the gospel so that he wouldn't be a burden, so that he wouldn't cause offense. 
Chapter 6, verse 3 says, he, gives, he says, giving no offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. That's all that Paul cares about. The reputation of the ministry. It doesn't care, he doesn't care what it costs him. He doesn't care if he doesn't have all the materialism that others have. He doesn't care that he doesn't have the, the regular settled life of other apostles. He would rather sacrifice. He would rather be spent, spend and be spent for the gospel. And everything, he says this, commending ourselves as doulos of God, slaves, as John MacArthur rightly has educated us. He, he is a slave of God. Guess what? Slaves have no rights. Slaves have no privileges. Slaves are, are owned. And he was owned by Jesus Christ. That's why he says an apostle of Jesus Christ means I belong to him. He has put a stamp of ownership over his life. And he is a slave. He is a servant of God. That is it. And again... A mindset that is sorely needed in the church today. The second thing is not only did he go from pride to humility, but also from accusation of insubordination to the blessing of independence. This is how upside down this is. Look at verse 9. When I was present with you, I was in need. I was not a burden to anyone. When I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. There you go. There are the brethren coming down from Macedonia. Macedonia is a region. Right? Macedonia is not just a town. It's a, it's, it's, it's the, that's why he refers to, in, in, in uh, chapter 8, he refers to the region of Mac the Macedonian churches, plural. Philippi is in Macedonia. And it is probably a reference here to Acts chapter 18 when uh, Timothy and Silas come down and visit Paul in Corinth and supply his needs. Acts chapter 18. Look at... Uh, Look at what happens here as a result of that type of support. In verses 1 through 5, we see the context that Paul is in. Paul is kicking it in high gear. There is ministry everywhere, witnessing to the Jews, going to the synagogues, persuading men that Jesus is the Christ. He says, after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Verse 1, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla... Because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. That's the edict of Claudius to, for Jews that they had to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Tent makers. He says, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. That's great. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It was because of the aid of Silas and Timothy that Paul was then liberated to preach the Word of God unhindered, unmitigated, full-time ministry. He went from tense to theology. He was self-sufficient at that point. He had needs in Corinth, but those needs had been supplied to him. And 
This also probably serves to show the contrast between Paul and his opponents. Look down uh, in chapter 11 here, 2 Corinthians, look down to verse 20. Because there we know the false teachers were taking advantage of the church. He says, you tolerate it if anybody enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone exalts himself and hits you in the face. In other words, they had come to the point because of their cowardice, they had come to the point because of their compromise and listening to these false teachers that no amount of abuse, spiritual abuse, could wake them up. Say, look, these guys, it's gotten to the point, it's almost as if they're slapping you in the face and you're tolerating it. And so he's drawing a contrast between himself and the false teachers who probably demanded that they be paid and that Paul was unworthy of payment. Uh, Kent Hughes says, obviously Paul raises the subject of money to put his opponents on their heels. He says, they knew that Paul's example made them look shabby in spite of their assertion that it is a mark of apostolic dignity to be supported by the congregation and that Paul refused that support because he knew he did not match their apostolic level. They knew that they were a burden to the Corinthians, and he was not. And so Paul is hoping that by pulling back, pulling back the blinders here and revealing his true motive, his true sacrifice, they're going to see the false teachers for what they are. And that's the way it should work when you talk to somebody that's in the prosperity movement. They say, what? Your pastor tells you you need to tithe 10%, even if it's your last dime? Even if you can't pay your medical bills and you're getting ready to go out on the street and you can't pay your rent, and they're telling you, well, the reason why you can't make your rent is because you haven't been sowing your seed. Instead, instead of that, Paul says, no, let me show you the depth of my sacrifice. And hopefully, if they have any conscience left, they'll see the sacrifice and they will turn against the false teachers. I really believe that is what he's gunning for. Ultimately, the true tragedy, therefore, is that these Corinthians had been uh, made to believe that, that, that Paul's love for the church was jeopardized, that he really truly did not love them. And Paul, he did love them. Look at chapter 12 with me. Turn to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, because Paul is very eager all the time to prove his love for the church. Every minister must do this Prove your love for the church. And he says in verse 14, Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you again, and I will not be a burden to you. See, they could not dissuade him. They could not make him turn from his policy. He says, For I do not seek what is yours, but you. In other words, I don't seek what you have to offer me. I seek you. I'm after your heart. I'm after your soul. I'm after your well-being, spiritually speaking. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. That's right, right? I mean, if uh, your daughter or your son comes to you and says, Mom, can I have some money for, you know, for lunch today or for the ice cream man? You don't say, well, actually, I was going to ask you for a loan. I mean, that would be completely lopsided, right? That would, that, that would be a distorted picture. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent. See, that's the King James kicking in. I will gladly be spend and be expended for your souls. 
If I love you more, am I, am I to be loved less? But, be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow as I am, I took you in by deceit. That's another statement that's kind of like, what? That's kind of an interesting statement on the level of other statements that he has made throughout the epistle, like, for example, in chapter 11, when he says that others come with a different gospel, with a different Jesus, with a different spirit, he says, you bear this beautifully. And if you don't have an eye to see what's going on there, you say, why? You're bearing this beautifully. Well, that is spoken with irony, and so is this. This is an ironical uh, statement that is used for emphasis. That's a stylistic technique that Paul often used in his letters. When he, uses, when he speaks of the deceit here, it is meant to combat the false teachers and their accusations that Paul actually had monetary intentions that were not yet revealed. In other words, he had hidden motives. They don't know what he's going to spring on them, but that he's being crafty, and that's how he's gathering them in. That is not true at all. Paul corrects this, and he goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 18, that even his emissaries, even his messengers, even his partners, his, his partners in the ministry, his associates, like Timothy, like Titus, like, like Silas, like this, these brothers that he sends to them, he says they walked in the same spirit and in the same steps. In other words, they had the same conduct, the same standard, the same method, the same type of manner in ministry, the same model of ministry as Paul did. They had the same sacrifice. And Paul's ultimate purpose, let me read to you again. Paul and his associates, they were financially independent, and in order to be a blessing to the church and to be effective minister, ministers, they forewent their privileges. And the ultimate reason for that, my dear friends, is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I, might be, so that I might, may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. As Calvinistic as Paul was, and I do believe he was a Calvinist to use that anachronistic association, but I do believe that Paul believed quite readily in the sovereignty of God. But notice his, notice his, his, uh, his comfort level, if you would, with being the means of God's sovereign election, with being the means of God's sovereignty, the means through which God draws in his people that he is willing to adapt to any situation, that he goes out of his way to become whatever he must become in order to reach the people he's going to. If he's going to go into the synagogues with Titus, he's going to have them circumcised. And, or Timothy, excuse me, Timothy, Acts chapter 16. Whatever situation Paul was in, he adapted. As Chuck Smith once said, blessed are the flexible, they shall not break. That's true in ministry, you know that? You have to be willing to bend. You have to be willing to adapt. You have to be willing to compromise, to yield for the sake of the gospel. And compromise there, you know what I mean, I hope. Moving on to verse 3. He says, not only is he reversing their thoughts of his insubordination, the blessings of his independence, but then thirdly, also the charge of insensitivity, we could say, 
to his integrity and his love. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. As a matter of fact, the Greek just says, God knows. Period. No, I do. Just God knows. In other words, Paul, perfectly comfortable in just presenting his conscience, presenting his motives before the omniscience of God. God knows. God is his judge. And so, Paul begins to affirm his love for them and his integrity for them by saying that the truth of Christ was in him. In other words, he spoke truthfully in Christ in relationship to Christ, as a minister of Christ, as an ambassador of Christ. Why? Because he had the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. And because he had the spirit of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. And when the spirit of Christ is in you, and when the mind of Christ is yours, you speak in truth. The phrase represents the strongest possible way that Paul could assert his personal integrity. That's what we're looking at here. This is Paul's, this is the strongest way that Paul could say, I'm telling the truth. He evokes God to come in as a personal witness to his integrity. Can you do that? Can you call, can you call God to your, as your witness to your personal integrity? 2 Corinthians 11.31, he says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm lying. Why blessed forever? Why not just leave it at, God knows I'm not lying. Why the blessed forever? It's because he is saying, I know whom I am addressing. It is the ever-blessed God And it is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows everything, and He knows that I am not lying. He knows the attributes of God. And He says, in the presence of this all-knowing God, I am telling the truth. 2 Corinthians 1.23, He says, I call God as the witness to my soul. You want to talk about integrity. (laughs) This is going down, down deep into the most existential level of Paul's being and saying, there God knows me in the depth of your heart. And that is so true, right? We've heard it said before. If you win the battle on the inside, you win the battle on the outside. If you walk with God in your secret life, you'll walk with God in all of your other life. That's the way that it works. Paul, regardless of being slanderously reported as being prideful, being arrogant, being insensitive, he does not budge, not even a bit. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 2. He doesn't yield to them, not even for a moment. He says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. You remember from chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians what that boasting was. And that is preaching the gospel free of charge. That's the boasting that he preached the gospel without charge. We have a gospel of free grace, brothers and sisters, and when we preach it to the world, we preach it freely. We don't go up to unbelievers and say, hey, did you get one of these gospel tracts? Well, I'll sell it to you for a couple bucks. 
You know? We give it out freely. You spend the money, you give it away. That's the way that it works. You give the gospel away free because the gospel is free. It's free to us. Oh, it, it, it costs Christ everything, right? Even as Paul says earlier on in chapter 8, he said that in, in verse 9, he says, it cost Christ everything. He was rich, wildly rich. Christ was in a habitation of regal glory, and he laid it down. He became poor so that you could become rich. That's the gospel that we have to proclaim. And he says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Maybe the regions of Achaia, he said that because that's where Corinth is at, in the region of Achaia. But maybe he said that because in the various other congregations, probably his opponents had already infiltrated. And he was ready to meet them wherever they were. To any extent, he was ready to go. And so that Paul was not going to change his manner in ministry for no one. At least not on this point. Not on this point. It wasn't pride. He wasn't motivated by any of this. He wasn't motivated to boast in this way. Because notice what he says. Why? I like that. He asks the questions. I'm not going to stop boasting. Why? Because I don't love you? What's the motive of your boasting? It was not because of pride. It was not because he sought to intimidate them as they'd accused. Unlike his opponents, it was not because he was looking to take advantage of them. Listen, it was not because he was, he was competing with other people. It was not because he was looking to win a popularity contest. It was not because he was seeking the approval of man. Ultimately, the reason for Paul's resolve was love. Love for the church. That's how he started the whole section, you remember? The bride of Christ, he's jealous for the purity of the bride of Christ. And again, a fact to which God, the all-knowing God, could attest. Why? Because I do not love you as they slanderously report me to be or not to. No, he says, God knows that I love you. God knows that I love you. So once again, Paul vindicated himself as a true churchman. Although he was slandered as being prideful, nevertheless, he was actually truly humble and seeking nothing for himself. And although he was accused of being insubordinate, out of step with the church, nevertheless, his independence actually proved to be a blessing. And even though he was accused of being cold, maybe insensitive, maybe detached, maybe out of step with the church, Nevertheless, he was motivated by a glowing passion for the purity of the local church. So now, let me turn the tables on you. Because what can we learn from Paul's apostolic authority? Well, there's one thing that we cannot follow Paul in, and that is in his apostolic authority. You do not have his apostolic authority. None of us do. However, we can we can mirror Paul in his resolutions to be this type of man. We can, like Paul, we can share in his apostolic devotion to Christ, his relentless pursuit of purity in the church, his relentless sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, his courage to stand up to unbiblical teachings and false teachers and false teachers. This is in these ways we can mirror him like Paul. His integrity, 
his character, his sincerity, his speaking in the sight of God. Let that be, the, the, let, let, let that be like a paradigm over your life that you want to do everything that you do in the sight of God. You want to speak in the sight of God. You want to, you want to, you're, you're, the motives of your heart are open and laid naked and bare before God, and you know it. And so be open with God. And how much, like Paul, are we willing to sacrifice for Christ? I tell you today, people, you want to talk about cheap grace. People don't want Jesus to cost them anything. They, they think following Christ won't cost them a thing. I can tell you one thing from Paul's life. We know this. It cost him everything. He said, but listen to the Spirit. I would gladly spend and be spent for you. That's the heart of the apostle. What is the gospel costing you today? Does it cost you anything at work? Or you just fit right in with all the men that are telling all the dirty jokes? Does it cost you anything at work when everyone starts gossiping about the boss? Do you just chime right in with the gossip? Does it cost you anything in the family? Or do your, does your unsaved family treat you just like they would any other unsaved believer? Are you getting any responses for your faith? Or is your faith so stealth that your, your faith goes almost undetected because you don't want to pay any price. You don't want that family member to be angry at you because you can't imagine life without them. I remind you of the words of our Lord Jesus, whoever does not hate mother or father or sister or, sister or brother is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy to be my disciple. We must be prepared for whatever friendships we will sacrifice, whatever financial blessings we will forego. Not every job is a good job. In my opinion, just because you're getting more money, it may not result in greater spiritual blessing. I had somebody once ask me, he laid out before me his plan for his life. This is my, this is, these are my options. I'm going to move here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this job, this or that. These are my options. What should I do? I said, I'll tell you what you should do. Whatever is spiritually most advantageous for your soul, that's what you should do. I could care less if you're making $100,000 a year or $50,000 a year or $20,000 a year. It doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual state of your soul. And if you know that moving to that place, moving to that town, moving into that home, living with those people, taking that job is going to take you away progressively from Christ, my word to you is sacrifice it. Let it go. So what things are we willing to sacrifice what persecutions are we willing to undergo? What ridicule are we ready to undergo? What vulnerability are we ready to undergo for Christ? We're living in a bold new world, folks. Just in the last couple of weeks, several cases have come before various courts in the land taking away people's business licenses and fining them for refusing to do a wedding cake with two men on it. And how long is it going to be before that comes into the church if you refuse to do a wedding for two men? You know, John Piper prayed for his new replacement 
pastor, Jason Myers, I don't know if any of you heard of that or saw the, the, the sermon that he did there, but part of his prayer for him was, I realize that it is very easily possible that Jason may spend the greater, the greater half of his ministry in prison for what he believes. We just don't know. But what are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice? And do we have that state of mind where we're ready to endure? Jesus said those that endure to the end will be saved. Will be saved. The curse of comfort is that in comfort, your sanctification is low. You're never sanctified as much as you are at the lowest points of your life, in the valley, where it's hard, in the trenches, in the battle, in the war, in the fire, in the furnace. And so sometimes our blessings here in America are our curse as a church. So let's have eyes to see that. Let's, let's have discernment for our own soul, for our own sanctification, and, 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 and identify our own areas. Where are we being loveless for the church? Where is my commitment to the church? I'm not an apostle like Paul, but I can surely love the church like Paul did. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, I've said all that I can say here today, and Lord, all of these words mean nothing if you do not, by the power of your Spirit, take them and apply them to our hearts. And so, Lord, we, we acknowledge that we are bankrupt without you. Lord, we acknowledge that we can preach and we can sing and we can organize and we can gather, but, oh, God, do not take your Spirit from us. Let the Spirit be so pleased to blow on this church with His presence and His blessing because we want to be sanctified more and more into Your image. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.